0: Welcome to criterion close up i'm mark herney here for criterion close-up episode number 44 with aaron west as always uh but uh, you know it's not a brighter summer day where i am aaron it's actually very cloudy about 70 degrees and a dreary summer day how about you
1: it is like uh, gonna be 100 degrees today so it's very bright very su-
0: sunny here uh very so, humid, I assume too. It's always humid here, but uh, always yeah. humid. In Sounds Europe.
1: like I'm in, South I'm better Canada. off than you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know, I don't. I don't mind it actually, because you know, summer like this, it gets hot and humid. I kind of enjoy a rainy day, a day, good day to stay inside and podcast uh, with you. And Mr. Scott I, Scott and I, welcome to Criterion Close-Up. Glad to finally have you on the show. It feels like you've been on here before. But it does. Haven't. And yet. And yet you haven't. And yet.
2: Yeah, we've
1: so, done yeah. a lot with Scott. Uh, Scott's our go-to guy for long long uh, movies. Uh, cause we, did, we did Rivette. <laughs> and That's we true. Yang. So uh, if uh, Greed comes out, I think we're going to call Scott or uh, maybe shoa
0: <laughs> Yeah. If we get a Blu-ray upgrade of The Human Condition, uh, yeah. Yeah. When you go. think of Long, think of Scott. Scott, of course, from <laughs> Criterion cast and writer, co-editor for Battleship Pretension. So, really glad to have you on finally, Scott.
2: Glad to be here. Yeah. Thanks Especially for joining for this us.
0: Film. Yeah, it's a good one. Yeah, it's 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 an important one. It seems a bit. I'll, I'll tell you, it, it it was a bit. I've never felt this way for a film. Uh, you know, from the 1990s. It's only you know, a couple decades old. Just it feels very. <sighs> I don't know i felt a weight on my shoulders delving into this one i don't know Do you guys feel the same way sure
2: a little bit at first yeah yeah
1: it's a little heavy but uh yeah. and, and and powerful so yeah well i guess we'll get there
0: <laughs> yeah yeah i think for me it was just the you know the the um um just the weight of this film and just a well, well we'll talk about it more but <laughs> we'll heavy. save that for later <laughs> scott let's get into your criterion connection first time guest uh again surprisingly how did you first come aware of the criterion collection
2: um i first became aware through the royal tenenbaums which is a film that i saw it came out when i was 15 or so yeah 15 and mm. so i bought the dvd and i thought it was because at the time studios were just kind of Ramping up like some branding as far as like art house films go. So I thought the Criterion Collection was just like whatever studio released The Royal Tenenbaum. That was just like their signature line of like (laughs) kind of high class movies. And then I don't I can't remember how exactly I came to discover everything else. I think maybe just exploring the inserts in that. Maybe it came with one of those catalogs of past releases and stuff. But there was a video store near me that had its own Criterion shelf and. Uh, I think especially to a lot of young cinephiles, young male cinephiles, it seems like uh, mm-hmm. seeing all those Criterion discs kind of lined up is a very attractive proposition. Um, and from there, I just kind of you know, dove in here and there to films that interested me. And it wasn't until I saw the packaging for Fanny Alexander that mm. I, I really started to get kind of serious about it and explore and take them as kind of a curatorial uh, guide to great cinema. And yeah, I spent a long summer indulging in uh, Bergman and Antonioni and Fellini and from there there was no going back
0: nice sounds like a lovely summer <laughs> yeah it was wow it's
1: it's funny if, if we quantified all these I think I think most of them are the Royal Tenenbaums uh, we hear that one a lot for Criterion mm-hmm. connections that's that's uh I guess Wes Anderson's a good entry point a gateway drug so to speak
0: yeah for <laughs> sure I'm curious yeah. uh, if Still you is. saw all those all those discs on the uh, on the shelf at the video store. I mean, did that kind of kindle um, a want to do the same kind of thing in your house, or did that kind of come later? Uh, I think that kind of I mean, I guess on some base
2: level, I was like, "What if all these were mine?" Right, <laughs> but it wasn't right. until like I, I actually had a decent amount that that seemed reasonable. You know, for a while, It was just like a dozen or so, and mm-hmm. there was not. It tends to look kind of uh, Pitiful, actually, when you just have like a small little <laughs> shelf of like a dozen specialty line releases. But once I started to build up, you know, a few dozen, then and, and kind of separate out my shelves, and now I have you know three completely distinct shelving units, and so it starts to look more presentational, I guess. Yeah,
0: yeah, very, I've been there, very <laughs> nice, <laughs> cool. Well, that's great. Well, again, very very happy to uh, have you on the show uh, again for the first time. Although we've been talking quite a bit, so welcome. And uh, before we get into a, a brighter summer day, we just wanted to have a uh, talk briefly about uh, our f- upcoming film school. Uh, Aaron, what do you think about this?
1: Yeah, well, we already teased that we're going to do this uh, series on French films. Uh, that We're going to start uh, September, I think it is, right?
0: Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, we, we
1: weren't sure what to call it. Uh, I think you called it movement once, which I was <laughs> like, I don't know about <laughs> uh People might associate that with something else. Uh but um, we decided to call it uh, it's going to be a sub series and we're going to call it film school in a cast. So kind of like uh, Criterion's film school in a box. So uh, and yeah that's so we're going to do the French series and then probably afterward we might do some other topic that you would might you might see in like a film studies class like maybe maybe noir maybe another film quote movement uh, maybe Something else, but I, I think I don't know about you, Mark, but I think it's fun to stretch our legs and uh, get a little more academic with these uh, these and use using Criterion as a, a kind of a jumping
0: off point. Yeah, yeah, that yeah, the springboard for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's it's I'd mentioned offline too. It's kind of the thing I wanted to get into. It's you know. Either you know some about this and you could follow along, watch these films, listen to our discussion. Um, you know, it's it'll be educational. Maybe it's a reason to jump into some films you've never watched before. Maybe you've just watched one, like, you know, in mm-hmm. this case, the 1930s French cinema. So it's just a good uh, way to delve into it. And for me, um, sometimes I hate making the decision of what what to watch. <laughs> this just makes it easier. So yeah, there it is. <laughs> and scott's going to be part of the french series so i I,
1: I hope you're excited about that scott i think it'll be a a fun series a lot of my favorite yeah i can't
2: wait i'm definitely looking forward to getting into i don't know how much you want to give away but one of the directors we're (laughs) lined up to talk about i don't know anything about so i'm looking forward to checking his stuff out
0: okay cool Uh, excuse
1: yeah there are actually a few directors that i know some about but i i'm looking forward to, to delving into more so it'll be fun
0: yeah, I've seen a few, but you know, just having the the overall outline umbrella to kind of piece these these films together, I just would think will paint a really nice picture for ourselves and for listeners. Looking yeah. forward to it.
1: What I'm when I'm afraid about the most though is pronunciation. <laughs> oh yeah, so, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, we'll have to work on that. I was practice nice.
1: in Canada actually. There you
0: go. Nice. There you go. <laughs> so film school and a cast upcoming in September. Yep. So more to come on that. We'll give you some, some more uh, information and you know maybe folks can play along. Play along. You can play, play the home game. <laughs> <laughs> the home version. just Uh, let's delve into it. Uh, we have a, a big movie to talk about. It's a, a bit long and uh, daunting but rewarding, A Brighter Summer Day, Edward Yang. Uh, this is a, It's a 1991 film, Spine Number 804, um, from Taiwan, of course, and uh, we were presented with the four-hour uncut version. Uh, this was released, uh, I, you have to help me, I think it was March, didn't this come out from Criterion? Does that sound yeah. Right? Okay. Thank you. <laughs> um, so just a few months ago, and really, uh, I mean, Criterion talks about this, of course, on their site. The most praised and sought-after titles uh, in all of contemporary film. Uh, it's uh, folks probably know the only other film from Yang in the collection is Yi Yi. So, yeah, and it was a kind of quite a time between releases and getting this one out there. So it's nice to get another Edward Yang film gets uh, some more Taiwanese cinema in the collection so we're finally getting this on home video uh it's been out there in many bootleg copies i heard about laserdisc copies vhs of course you know just these bad transfers from youtube so we finally get this uh, nice presentation um from the world cinema project um from uh, you know that restoration released from criterion a blu-ray and dvd actually two blu-rays at a, a nice price point so it's very very cool and the film you is know, set in the early 60s in taiwan uh, based on a true story of a crime that rocked the nation that we will we will get into so and there's uh I, you know i mentioned this does include it includes the uncut version uh, there are other versions out there uh there's a three-hour version and a shorter 127 minute version but the version that is released on criterion is the uh, the uncut version Um, the film it was selected as the taiwanese entry for best foreign language film at the academy awards that year but it wasn't didn't happen to get nominated uh we do have a a number of actors in here about 100 amateur actors in different roles we'll get into that a little bit and um, the other thing i thought interesting um, we'll probably talk about it later is the uh, the title itself Uh, and how that translates Um, so yeah maybe we can talk about that some more but any anything else you guys wanted to mention about the uh, the film itself before we kind of set this up uh, getting into the Taiwanese migration
1: well 127 minutes would just be too short I'm afraid Uh, so I'm I'm glad we don't have um, even though I'd be curious what they'd cut out
0: I'm I'm glad I, I, I watched the longer version absolutely I'd be curious you know like a a supplement would have been interesting but it it would have made it like a third disc yeah
2: yeah I mean there are kind of these kind of extraneous plot points that come up and you could see how it could be narrowed down but it would definitely lose I think the kind of total emotional impact of it I was most surprised though by just how kind of straightforward the movie was when you get right down to it you know it'd Mm. be a little hard to follow on first viewing but it Mm. has a very classical structure that I'm looking forward to exploring more in this episode and in spite of kind of its daunting length and the kind of the slow cinema mold in which it's working it's one of the more approachable films of the new taiwan cinema that i've come across Hmm. um so i I hope that people give it a shot
0: yeah it's a good good point yeah certainly more straightforward than than you would think um but yeah (laughs) the uh uh, i will say the commentary certainly helps kind of piece it uh, together for you too so oh definitely again yeah nice nice uh piece from Criterion. but So let, yeah, let's talk about the Taiwanese migration. I mean, it really sets up this, this film. There is an opening title uh, that speaks to it about the, the migration in uh, 1949 uh, at the sort of, not really, end of the Civil War uh, between the, the national government of the time and uh, the Chinese communists. So I wanted to turn it to you, Aaron, to kind of set this up for us a bit.
1: Sure, I'll uh, I'll be the history teacher uh, for these, nice. uh, this episode, uh, and and yeah, history lessons are 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 s- sometimes people might see them as boring, but uh, th- actually it, the history with this film I think fits very well, and uh, with the Republic of China, there's actually another Criterion cl- connection. Uh, Puyi, the last emperor, uh, was the was re- literally the last emperor when the um, Republic of China took over. In 1912, and uh, and I, I won't go into the Red Army and all that, but um, and the communist movement, but China, China became a communist, or uh, I'm sorry, China became a, uh, a I guess, a, well, a pro- republic, and uh, Chiang Kai-shek uh, was the leader for that uh, that government, and then uh, Mao Zedong, or Mao Zedong, depends on who you ask, uh, how that's pronounced. He led uh, the Red Army, the communist movement. There was a civil war for many, many years, and then the Republic of China was exiled, or actually, uh, refugees migrated to Taiwan in 1949, and that's uh, that's pretty much the backdrop of where uh, a brighter summer day comes in. Uh, they they didn't they expected to be there temporarily. They they thought they'd come back. That somehow maybe the communist. Government would topple. Maybe they would be able to rally the military and defeat them. Uh, but of course, as we know, they never did, and still haven't. And so they've had to deal with Taiwan as uh, you know, as a, its own country. So uh, the Republic of China, uh, which it's strange calling it that because it became Taiwan, but it was uh, it was recognized as as the government by most of the world. And as we see, there was martial law until the 1980s. Uh, it, we see this in the film uh so the, the the government was very very conservative very militaristic uh they were because they were so anti-communist uh they and and we see this in the film with the father uh they were very very aggressive with uh squashing uh, political dissent and so uh so this this takes place from 1959 on And uh, there are some some seeds of a new middle class, and some of this is reflected in the gangs that we see, the Little Park Gang and the 217 Gang, uh, the two class systems. And so, yeah, and and a lot of it is just people dealing with this new uh, Taiwanese, uh, I guess, republic. And the children, they are from Taiwan, basically. Some might have migrated when they were very, very young whereas the older people have memories of China, and uh, and so that that's kind of always in the backdrop. And one thing I like about the film is they don't really spoon-feed the history to you, so you can really benefit from knowing it, and in, in fact, I think that makes, makes it daunting on the first watch because without an understanding of—and uh, I have a rough understanding, but even my first watch, it was tough to wrap my brain around that. So uh, did you guys have issues with that, or—
2: Yeah, they kind of give you like that big info dump on a title screen Mm -hmm. of the context that will unlock so much of what's kind of on the undercurrent of these characters lives. And so if you don't have a familiarity with that, it can be tough to Mm -hmm. kind of keep that in mind on the first view. And this was a film that definitely had a greater impact on the second for probably that reason and several others, but it's so key to the, the way the kids are so unmoored, you know, the parents don't have any sort of foundation in which they can raise them. And meanwhile, the kids are kind of uh, in; they're just in, uh, inundated with uh, both American and Japanese music, but not right. a lot about Chinese culture. And they're living in Japanese houses. Right, right. The parents constantly assume they'll return to the mainland, so there's no use kind of figuring out the local culture and making them kind of fit into all that. Uh, and so the kids never really find this sort of purchase. And you know, the, there's so many parallels between uh, sort of the natural search that a teenagers. Go through between finding their own identity and to finding a cultural identity at the same time, you can see why the kid just can't sort of find themselves in this whole mess. And I really liked a scene that kind of touches on this in a very kind of abstract way where they're having the English language lessons and uh cat. The younger character mm-hmm. latches on to the word "I" as this great word in the English language because it's so simple. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's all the kids really have to hold on to is whoever you know they are and whatever they can find for themselves. There's no kind of real group dynamic that is safe for them, so they have to kind of rely on themselves. Especially Cat and Sir, who are the two of the only characters who don't have any direct gang connections.
1: Yeah, they're almost lost. Uh, these characters. Um- kind of be- between the the parents who are caught up in the bureaucracy uh, and hoping to get back home and uh, these kids are trying to forge an identity uh, but yeah it's and, and there's of course it's overpopulated there are two schools there's day and night school so yeah. because there're just too many people to to have uh, and, and too small or too few schools to have uh, have all kids in the daytime so yeah quite yeah. a unique dynamic and I, I like that yang. You know, as in 1990 or I don't know when he started filming, maybe 89, 90, you know, had the I I think we can see him looking back. You know, he's somebody that lived, was a child during this period. So uh, so it it seems very personal from him.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Certainly. You know, it seems like the, with a backdrop of this event, he kind of paints a story. Uh, within that, I know there were a number of writers uh, with within the the film itself, and I, I see. I certainly agree with what what you guys are saying too, and I, I think uh, you know that. It's difficult as an adolescent anyway and to grow up it's it just in trying to find yourself and your place in this world and to grow up in in this kind of environment with um, so little structure and I think the parents themselves are even trying to find themselves because they've been uh, displaced and trying to f- you know, find their way in this new. Land and thinking they may, um, you know, like you said, migrate back. It's just a, a just an overall feeling of uh, of unease, and it's a bit of a melting pot too. Uh, you know, we wanted to talk about the the culture and how you know there are a, a number of cultures that are involved, and I, I even think of the United States a bit in, uh we always we always talk about the united states as a melting pot and taiwan is has been that way too it's been under control but in a different way is that it's been under control by uh, china it's been under control by uh, japan uh, i'm not sure about the you know the other history and of course you have the uh, influx of those cultures and of course the american culture because there's a american presence there um in you know in taiwan too so you know curious what you you guys think about that kind of the that mix of cultures and the uh, the western uh, influence
2: <laughs> <laughs> i mean i i think uh like i said i think the american music is really important uh i, I wondered too if there was some influence in the cinema that kind of Because my understanding Mm. is at the time, Taiwan cinema is really just beginning. It began in kind of like the mid-50s and kind of the studio setup they have. I wonder where if they got that more from Japan or from America, but certainly in the music the kids are listening to. It seems to be they're constantly referring to America in the way they dress or in... Uh, just the way they act and this idea of Western culture and they even the one movie we go see them see is uh, Rio Bravo an American mm-hmm. Western which right. is like the most American genre uh, so it seems like America is always kind of lurking in the background there's no kind of direct illusion probably because the idea of any of them making it to America is just so distant and impossible but uh, I like uh, Kat's excitement at the end that Elvis kind of wrote in this letter mm-hmm. <laughs> admiring that he was listening to his record even though it's one of those things I looked this up uh, that record didn't the Elvis song didn't come out until the late nineteen sixty. so I wonder if it even could have made it into Taiwan by mm. the time this film kind of concludes but it's still such a nice touchstone and gets to so much of the underlying melancholy of the film.
1: Oh, nice uh, continuity catch there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, think, we'll have to I put that on a few of those. IMDb yeah. goofs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, um by the way, I looked it up and, and Edward Yang was born in 47, so he was 12-13 uh, around this time frame. So yeah, I, I think he hmm. probably is drawing on memory for a lot of these uh uh plot points, but but yeah, no, I think the as you mentioned, the the melting pot You know they they live in Japanese houses and and we Mm -hmm. see a lot of Japanese movies. So in fact, I I I found myself thinking of Ozu movies a lot. uh, Just the way, and and maybe it's just me ascribing this, but um, but I, I, the way some shots were framed and sometimes the camera stationary, I I thought that maybe Yang was mimicking Ozu at times, and and maybe not. Uh, And then as as Scott mentioned, the American influence was uh, prevalent, and and you know America was. I guess a superpower by then, uh, both culturally and uh, nationally, milita- militaris- militaristically. Uh, but it, what, what's I think what was really fascinating is that the the kids didn't really speak English, and Cat would trans- transcribe these lyrics uh, phonetically. Which you know, if, if anybody, you know, if, if you try to do that with French or Italian or God forbid Mandarin, um, mm. that's that's quite a chore. But he he did it well uh, with uh, "Are You Lonesome Tonight."
2: are you lonesome tonight? do you miss me tonight? are you sorry yeah yeah and I really like that song that they sing at the first kind of sock hop kind of thing the concert they put on uh, I can't remember the name of the song but their rendition of it is really spot on
1: <laughs> I think was that Angel oh, I'm sorry that was
0: uh, i, well, I Never was... Let You Go maybe yeah never I've Never Let, let yeah. You Go yeah it yeah. was my favorite too
1: yeah, the yep. music was really good. I mean, you can tell that they're they're not actually singing and that's okay, but uh
0: it, yeah, it works well. The effect. Yeah, yeah yep. exactly. The effect was there for sure. Yeah, I, I did like uh I well you guys had mentioned Rio Bravo and John Wayne too and I did notice um thinking of um sir and his, you know, the influence of um uh, the parents. I, it seemed like he was missing to some extent. I mean, his father was there, uh, but maybe he was missing a father figure per se. I mean, he it certainly seems a bit aimless and trying to find his place in this uh, this film. And uh, I like the scene where he puts on a cowboy hat and present, pretends to draw a gun, just you know, like John Wayne mm-hmm. uh, after seeing Rio Bravo. So you know, again, just another example of him uh, seemingly trying to find his place. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I think. I
2: was just gonna say I think a lot of it comes not necessarily like an absence of a father figure but when you have a family of five kids it starts to be and you know the father's working full time it's like how much attention can one kid really get and a lot of Sir's interaction in the family environment is to kind of recede and say as little as possible and I really like the way that uh, Yang presents this kind of bedroom space we first Mm -hmm. see it from his perspective kind of waking up and kind of like image through the mosquito netting um and you kind of See it as this kind of safe space every time he's in it with the flashlight that he steals. And uh, it's just kind of the only space in that house he has. But then as soon as he cuts to the outside, it's just a closet, yeah. is all he has. Yeah. Um, a closet. And it's, it's this amazing. great tension between kind of the reality he's living in and the way he conceives it.
1: Yeah, he's trapped in a box, literally. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, uh, w- regarding the hat uh, and the gun, I, I, those are just two of the mo- there are many motifs throughout the film. And and one thing I noticed is that a lot of them are Western derived. Uh, the hat and the gun are you know can be pulled directly from Rio Bravo. And we see uh, Ming, uh, the female lead character, with a hat often. And it's used uh, to. Uh, I don't know if it's always used to signify the the culture or maybe I think there's a little bit of a power issue as well. Uh, but uh, but yeah, he he uses a lot of symbolism. Of course, the gun that is foreshadowing, which uh, I guess <laughs> uh, do we care about spoilers or should we just spoil this?
2: I'm fine with diving in.
1: Yeah, sure. Well, I think we it's a four-hour movie, and so people, if you uh, if you don't want to be spoiled and want to skip ahead to our rating, I'm going to put a time marker in the show notes so you'll know what um, when to find that. But uh, yeah, from here on out, I think we just get into it. Sounds good. So, yeah, gun. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, it's one of many kind of allusions to the final act of violence that characterizes so much of the film and, in fact, was directly stated in the Chinese title. Um, but there's, yeah, certainly the time when Ming accidentally fires what turns out to be a loaded gun. There's the time that uh, you mentioned, Mark, where uh, Sir has the cowboy hat on and spins around and kind of fake shoots what mm-hmm. turns out to be Ming uh there's the time in the field when he sort of mimics being shot as an example of why so many boys are afraid of uh serving in the military the film keeps kind of alluding to these violent acts or hinting at them without them turning out to be destructive at all so by the time uh that finale comes i was so caught off guard that i assumed nothing bad could happen truly bad could happen to our main characters and then that gets that wide shot where it's like no no it's all over now.
0: Mhm.
1: Oh,
2: lovely wide
0: shot. Yeah,
1: and even the the final scene, you know, if when you watch it you can tell what happens, but because he he's in denial of her her being dead, when when I first watched it, I wasn't quite clear exactly what happened either. So um, I th- and I think the the playfulness with the guns and and you know him playing dead in the field as you mentioned, is... Uh, it it does kind of set you up for that. Uh, Mm -hmm. And the film language, this is not like a, uh, you know, a a Hitchcock thriller or, 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 you know, M. Night Shyamalan where there's a big twist, uh, (laughs) even though I guess technically it is a twist ending in a way, uh, but, uh, or a shocking ending. Yeah.
2: Yeah, But no, the film teaches you how to watch itself. Every film does. And this Mm -hmm. film had been teaching us that, you know, there had been violence against other characters we don't know as well. um, But, Every time there is kind of violence around the main set of characters, it ends up being nothing. So it dissipates.
0: Yeah, I, I was thinking of um, you know that too, and how uh, I kind of made a comparison to Boyhood in that there are a number of times when it's a very tense movie. I think a brighter summer day, and I keep expecting the worst to happen to more characters uh, than than actually does, um, especially with you know the translation we had alluded to the Gouling Street youngster murder incident. Um, so wondering if there were additional, um, that's the, you know, the original uh, title, um, the Taiwanese title. And mm-hmm. so I, I kept thinking that we were going to see additional uh, violence. And, you know, there's the scene where Ming accidentally shoots the gun uh, towards um sir of course, we're not sure at first what happens, but he ends up you know being okay and um, you know so there's those those just those moments and the the moments in the I, I love this one of my favorite shots I know this comes up a lot is in the tunnel, that brick tunnel uh, where you're just expecting to see the violence and, um, you know, there's that uh, cut to the black shot of the, well, there's the boys in the tunnel and the black shot and the basketball coming out. And so often we see the, the effects of the violence, but we don't see the violence itself. Uh, Yang doesn't uh, doesn't show it. It seems like he, you know, feels like he, we don't need to see it, but we, we see the effects and that's what's what's important.
2: Yeah, the tone of the film is really interesting. It definitely has that tension that kind of if i'd known the chinese title of the film ahead of time i would have been like oh this is where that tension is coming from (laughs) Uh, but in watching it with the american title in mind i i kind of went into it thinking it would be this kind of melancholic remembrance of you know bygone era which a lot of ho xiao shen's films of the era were and so i was kind of primed for that and there is that element in the film but knowing it's chinese title too there is those two elements work in concert so well together and so many scenes kind of serve both purposes of getting across uh, those two uh, tones.
1: Yeah. Brighter Summer Day is such a pleasant title.
2: <laughs> and but it's also kind of like, it's a time that's passed, you know, sure. It was brighter uh, hmm. or it could be brighter. It's, right. you know, whatever yeah. it's going on now is not, yeah. uh, not the brightness. Looking the, back or the forward. The good old
1: days yeah. sort of, yeah. Yeah. Um, and what's, what's interesting, and, and I, I might be mistaken about this, but of course Edward Yang, w- he he studied in America, he, he went to USC. Uh, so he was, is as much English, or he, I shouldn't say he's not as much English, but he's very aware of uh, American culturally um and so he spoke English very well. and so I, I, I thought that this actually had dual titles. I thought that a brighter summer day was actually you know, the, on the actual title card in the Taiwanese version. I, I, maybe if you guys know or if a listener wants to correct us wh- but what's and that's what's makes it strange is that the the Taiwanese title is literally uh, Goling Street uh, murder right. or youngster murder, right? So do, yeah. do you guys know yeah. is, was that is that correct?
0: That's that's my understanding. Is that I I and I think um, Tony Rains uh, alluded to that in the commentary, if I remember correctly, that both were on the Taiwanese uh, original title. That's right. Oh, okay.
1: That's where I heard yeah. that. I guess, but uh, yeah, yeah, I th- think that's pretty interesting. <laughs> is that you have these really tonally uh, disparate titles? Uh, I mean, one's strictly violence, and the the other one is strictly you know, pleasantries. <laughs> so <Yeah. laughs> it, it's sort of a contradiction, and if you could see this movie. It does have violence, and it does have pleasant, uh, you know, nice aesthetics, beautiful scenery, uh, tranquility.
0: Yeah. yeah. I was thinking of the violence. Um, you know, it, of course, this is—it's uh, it, interesting. Most of the type of gang films that you will see, at least the, from, from what I've seen, have involved adults. And I like the fact that I, I knew I was going to be invested in this film knowing that it was a younger— um, You know, really a coming-of-age movie, but also there's some gang-related, not just violence, but interactions and how, you know, people carry themselves. And so I I I just—I was—really liked uh, that interaction overall. I even uh, thought of—I tend to compare movies probably too much, but I was thinking of the early parts of uh, Once Upon a Time in America Mm. um, where, you know, we see the seeds of, you know, those um, boys growing up and becoming— uh gangsters and so you know it made me think of you know, why was scorsese a fan of this film why did he want to um you know really restore it I and mean, it just seems pretty obvious i guess based on the you know the story uh, that is there i thought you were gonna a yeah, go west like side to... story
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> a little yeah. different yeah i'd like to kind of revisit mean
2: streets with this film in mind I, mm, yeah. I was kind of taken off guard by the degree and severity of violence having seen and tony range this in the commentary as well that Ho Xiao Shen's A Time to Live, A Time to Die, which is kind of his film about his own youth in, in mm. gang culture. But gang culture in that film is so like, just kind of uh, getting into mischief, you know, they kind of steal bicycles. And that's kind of the extent of the damage they do. And maybe, you know, some light property damage. But so by the time this film starts to explode, in like almost all gang war, I was like, oh, no, the gang problem in Taiwan was a really big deal. And really, uh, you can see why kids would some kids would be kind of uh, wary of getting involved in it.
1: Yeah. And, and it's what's a, speaking of the culture uh, clash, or I guess the melting pot, the gangs use uh, Japanese weapons, samurai swords. Mm-hmm. And, and even though we don't, you know, this is not Zatoichi or uh, Lady Snowblood, we don't see gushing blood, but, uh, but the violence is pretty brutal. And this is not, uh, yeah. uh, these aren't like a cowboy gunshot, uh, you know, where you just see the bullets land and no blood. Yeah, yeah seems... and you do kind
2: of sense when the kids discover those weapons how much more that kind of opens up the
0: possibilities of them. They kind of are yeah. in awe of these objects they've found. Yeah, it's very realistic violence. Uh, it it seems mm-hmm. like I mean it's it's very it's brutal it's grueling. I mean there's this the scene uh, later mm-hmm. on with um, the you know the two one seven boss that's just uh, wrenching, and I love the right. way they Honey. hang. Yeah. Well, the, the way that Yang captures it. I, actually, I'm thinking of the, you know, when, um, was it Shangdong is uh, still, you know, he's dying. Um, and oh, uh, Sarah right. is there, you know, with the flashlight. And just, I love the way that it's it's lit. And, um, you know, you just the audio of, of Shang Dong, it's, it's brutal. <laughs> Probably the worst. For me, it was the toughest scene in the, the film
1: and and some of the violence is really matter of fact and and honey mm-hmm. is the guy is the kid that was pushed in front of the bus and uh and and that that scene it just happens in an instant and then of course there are repercussions later with the the massacre but uh but yeah he doesn't dwell on them too much you know and even even with the the ending the the final scene even though there's consequences he doesn't uh he doesn't belabor the you know the violence
0: right so I'd be curious, uh, we should talk a bit about Yang's style. I mean, we've talked about it some and how he uh, composed this film. So I wanted to turn it to you guys to just talk about the Yang style. I'll kind of lead it off, I guess, with uh, he does do a lot of uh, long takes and long shots, uh, I noticed. So that's one um, thing that he does, which seems to be, I mean, I haven't. it's tough with, Watching this film, we don't have a really good point of reference, I think, other than maybe seeing some Ho Shao Shen films, uh, of which I haven't seen a lot. But, you know, I mm. kept thinking that we need we need about five Taiwanese uh, clip series or something like that to kind of delve into some of these films. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but <laughs> I,
1: th- I think we're going to um, get there when we talk about the documentary.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Curious. Uh, you know, Scott, what would you think about uh, Edward Yang's uh, style? And had you seen Yi Yi?
2: i had not seen E when I first saw this movie. I went back and watched E, and then I watched his 1986 film, The Terrorizers. And I rewatched this, and this film is definitely uh, pretty distinct in a lot of ways, um, as far as his kind of structure. The, he doesn't have a lot of long takes, but they're not kind of overly long. They're enough right. to kind of capture the environment. He doesn't film more than he needs to capture a scene. He doesn't film. Less than he needs, you know. It's not kind of another new Taiwan director, uh, Simon Lang, who pushes the long shot form to like its absolute breaking point. Uh, Yang is not kind of working that. Out. Apparently, Antonioni was a huge on him, and I can kind of see that more so the kind of early sixties Antonioni before he started to really push long take aesthetic. The so, uh, definitely definitely calm uh, to the way he presents it. And, but I think it also ramps up the tension, too. It lets the characters kind of exist in their environment, uh, but doesn't kind of uh, lie. It actually increases the tension, too, um, mm-hmm. because we can... I don't know. There's a certain tension, I guess, in the still shot and not a lot of tracking and not and definitely no handheld that I can recall. Um, it's just kind of like shot, shot, shot. kind The of, yeah. you
0: know, same way Chantal Ackerman actually uses that to increase tension in her films. Mm. yeah just a little you know some slow pans maybe uh the occasional tilt you know there's a, a violent scene with the father and the older brother uh, where you see the uh, it's really a, a widescreen shot it's like a, a film com- composition almost and then it you know slowly pans down and we see sir is actually uh, watching so yeah not not many movements uh, yeah
1: yeah not many that's why i thought of ozu because uh the mm. camera doesn't mm-hmm. move uh, of course the, the long shots and the long takes uh Although Ozu had some long long takes, but yeah, I, I, some part of me wonders if they if that was a budgetary, uh, re, just because they didn't have a lot of money to make this film. I think they even ran out towards the end, so they yeah. But mm-hmm. some of the the some great shots, uh, like one sequence, the one in the ice cream uh, scene between the two gangs when Honey comes back and then he's basically uh, leaves this gang. He finds that they don't really respect him anymore. That was a great shot, and that all uh, unfurls over a—I don't—I didn't time it, but I think about five, six minutes or so.
2: Yeah, David Bordwell wrote a whole piece on that one shot. Uh, I'll send the mm-hmm. guys the links so you can put in the show notes. But it's a really fascinating breakdown of the way that Yang uses staging and and some slight tracking and kind of making one shot really dynamic.
1: Yeah, you know, his, and really every frame is just gorgeous uh, he, he just really can frame a, a scene and, and it really says something for a four-hour movie in that it's so um, aesthetically pleasing really along the way I, and sometimes I would be distracted from the actual plot just by uh, the pretty pictures hmm. basically so yeah his style is uh, impeccable uh, I wish we had more from it uh, uh, of course I wish he was still
0: living and, um, and making films yeah, making films Yeah, I I would agree. I mean, it it was striking to me, and I I know we've watched you know you watch films that Criterion releases, and we always often say that the film looks gorgeous. But this film really drew me in from the opening credit sequence uh, with the you know the quiet streets enclosed by the trees, just that that tunnel sequence, Mm -hmm. uh, just perfect framing for credits. And then very soon after that, we get uh, a sense of his. Use of and you know whether it's him and or the cinematographer the uh, his use of lighting uh, when we get that kind of green blue look with the light on the water where the kids are saying uh, smooch smooch and uh, they're kind of going along that uh, that there's a sh- uh, small pan very slow pan like we mentioned before as they run along uh, the shot and just between those two shots I just knew that I was in for something special uh, with mm-hmm. this film and the kind of the, <laughs> the hands of a master so to speak yeah. But also
2: in terms of uh, character introductions, he uses the style in some interesting ways there. You know, the girls are kind of constantly introduced at a distance. Uh, the first time mm. we see Ming, she's mm-hmm. like running out of a room. We don't even see her face. And then there's that girl who kind of runs the little, I don't even know what to call it, but it's a little like sales stand where yeah. she sells kind of trinkets. Right, right. Um, and the first time we see her, the, girls, the boys are just talking about her as she walks by and speculating about her underwear. <laughs> yep. And so you get a real sense right away of just how separated the boys and girls are and how kind of you know tony rains complains in the commentary that ming is kind of present this as this unknowable woman but i think that's kind of part of yang's point is mm. that sir never really knows her and never really attempts to really know her and just keeps trying to fit her into the box and try to find her the way that he sees her and not try to figure out who she actually is so i think yang's very really aware of how the women appear in this film Yeah, Yeah, there's a
1: mystique that I think uh, is intentional, and I think it actually makes, enhances the film. Uh, This is really from the boys' perspective, Uh, sir, or even the the people in the gangs. You know, it's, the world of women is uh, foreign to them.
0: Hmm. Yeah, he, he certainly captures, too, how the, uh, just the interactions between them and coming of age, where the, the, the women uh, typically, maybe not Ming quite as much, but are more mature, and you, you know, the boys are trying to find themselves, they're goofing around, they're you know, trying to figure out the, the color of you know, said girl's <laughs> character's underwear. So it, you know, he, he definitely gets and remembers that time frame uh, in, in his life. I think he uh, portrays that well. So we talked a bit about uh, the style of the film, and we wanted to talk a bit about the the class. Um, you know, we talked about the the relationship between the uh, the well, the girls and the boys in the film, and you, you can't help but talk about this uh, film without talking about the the class. The difference between um, really the two gangs is you could see as a line of uh, a, you know class being drawn with the Little Park Boys being the children of civil servants, and you know the two seventeens being the children. Of uh, military officers, as I understand, so yeah, I'm curious what you guys think about the uh, the class uh, differences.
1: Yeah, well, I, I think the class is a major major part of this um, this film, and, and as I ma- mentioned earlier, the um, there really wasn't a middle class at this point. It was really just government kids, government workers, ki- their kids, and then uh, working class, which was is basically poor. And so, I, the in the the film the gangs are the kids of these civil servants what was the little park gang i believe and then the 217 gang were the the poor kids basically mm-hmm. and so and i think that it takes a couple watches and, and i probably need another one to really dissect this but i think you you really can see that the uh, if you get into these two gangs the little park gang does have a sense of entitlement maybe uh, maybe they're a little snobbish whereas the 217 gang is a little t- rougher grittier maybe uh, I, I don't know if you guys perceive this but uh,
2: oh the, well they do seem to be the ones that are quicker to kind of escalate the circumstances you know the little park boys kind of posture a lot about uh, instigating violence but the 217s really go for it
1: oh they do <laughs> they sure do <laughs> they do go for it um, and then sir is uh, sir and cat I, I don't know cat's parentage, I, don't, I don't, just don't recall it, if, if it was mentioned, but Sirs, he's really, if he was going to be in a gang, it would be the Little Park gang, and I think that's the one he is closest to, uh, that was, Hun- yeah, that was Honey, right, so, and he sort of befriends Honey later, but uh, but he is basically neutral, and I, I think that's right. why he makes such a great prota- protagonist, is because he's sort of, uh, even though he may have a, a alignment and and also you could say that he transitions from being uh, the civil servant class to the working class when his dad is uh, put into prison later, which basically changes the film. And and actually that's mm-hmm. where really I think where his isolation or really where he devolves is when his father uh, is completely absent. He was partially absent before, but uh, he and we don't really see that absence. But he he does totally go away. And when he comes back, he's like a different person. So yeah
0: yeah he kind of alluded that you know to his father that uh you know he his father was apologizing for i don't know not being available not saying much and he's like well when you speak dad i listen and i mm-hmm. I, th- I think you have uh some i mean he's obviously the father figure but he does listen to what his dad says i think uh, there's a point where his father says something like you can't trust something with a hole in the middle and i just you know i i was thinking of you know that really to me is informing the Sir's way that he views women. I mean, I I think—I'm not sure about the relationship with, you know, the father and the mother, but it seems kind of strained. I don't think the father has a really—seems to have a really good view of women, and you wonder how that affects, you know, the final— um violence that we we talked about um you know and, and his relationship with women and you know having a, a difficult time kind of he's already having a tough time finding his way um but you know based on what his dad is saying and he obviously takes him uh him at his word so yeah it's tough.
1: his his dad's not a happy guy either and no. even
0: before mm-hmm. the imprisonment he's he's sort
1: of morose and uh downtrodden and i, I think maybe that's he's He's representing the, the the old school Taiwanese people. The, you know, mm. they they didn't want to be in Taiwan. You know, today Taiwan's seen is a, a pretty nice place to be, but back then they all yearned to go back to China. And uh, and I, so I think the for the first half, the dad was just also lost, just like his kid would become later. And in the second half, the dad was just downtrodden because he'd basically been tortured. So well, yeah.
2: he, but in the first half, at least the father has some sense of hope and principles. You know, there's that talk. When they're first kind of walking bicycles alongside each other where right. the father's like, you know, there's no sense admitting to something you haven't done. You know, and It's worth kind of sticking to these central principles and taking the punishment that comes. But then when the father has to take completely meaningless punishment, uh, he kind of realizes, or feels that the, lo- the loss of principles there. And then when they come back to that same sort of bicycle walk, the father can mm-hmm. only hope to maybe buy his son some glasses you know that's kind of right these small kind of victories are all he has to latch on to and the whole structure of the film is very interesting in that way in the way that these uh, people and relationship and events recur in kind of different forms you know objects kind of reappear mm. and the baseball bat comes to into play in different contexts as mm-hmm. you know sort of a posturing thing at first and then really a decisive element in sir's isolation towards the end when he nearly attacks the faculty uh, and then Sir's father repeatedly has to plead to the headmaster using kind of the same line of reasoning, and the headmaster growing weary of this sense that he should be giving this kid a break when the kid just keeps uh, going, you know, losing that trust. And mm-hmm. then, like I said, the walk on with the bicycles, the ice cream parlor keeps uh, recurring. Mm-hmm. At first, it's kind of this bustling, bright, kind of joyous dance, even if it's all violence tinge. you know, it's kind of mm-hmm. a happy place. And then it gradually becomes. A tougher place to be you know sir and ming have a nice little date there but then honey comes in and completely upends their whole relationship and then it we next see it during the typhoon and then the mm-hmm. final time we see it it's just sir and sly sitting there and there's nobody else there and it's completely dark outside and so all these kind of spaces keep getting uh more imposing and more difficult to manage and even the site where uh uh, sir finally stabs ming uh at first mm-hmm. it had been this kind of like nice little interaction with them and both scene- both of those scenes start the same way with ming calling out to sir and him pretending he can't hear her and trying to ignore her mm-hmm. um and then that ends qu- quite terribly as no neither of them would have predicted the first time you know he's there to kind of confront ma over ming but by the time ming comes up he realizes that all his anger is at her mm-hmm. over this completely meaningless understanding of who she is
1: yeah, a lot of parallel scenes. Uh, yeah, good good observations. And, and a lot of those, I think, are uh, like like the, uh, the 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 parents, the father and son, the par- uh, parallel bicycle scenes. I think a lot of them represent the uh, their fight against authority. And you know, the 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 child is fighting the school authorities, whereas the the father is fighting the or the government authorities. At, at first, he's part of them, but of course, later he becomes. Um, uh. I guess I lost my thought <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, dissatisfied or or disillusioned with them, i guess is probably the uh, the, the proper word mm. but um
0: and but and yeah it's, no it's yeah still, and those were- still tied to it too, i mean, he doesn't want to give up his his government job um you know for this this other uh, opportunity to do that that comes up, so he's yeah just seems to keeps coming back to he's kind of a lost. Uh, figure two as as is his son. So you know how is mm-hmm. his how's Sir going to find his footing if his father can't? And then the baseball bat is a plaything, uh, even though it's it's a, a misbehaving plaything.
1: And then it's used as a plot device to show aggression and uh anti-government behavior Mm. and and really the the guns are also playthings with him and ming yeah uh and then they of course become a little more serious when she shoots well boy she's a terrible shot
0: (laughs) 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 yeah you wonder how she could miss but
2: all these kind of elements just uh keep the film kind of watchable i guess Mm. and pushing that tension that we've been talking about along and he also uses transitions in a really interesting way uh sometimes the last line of one scene will kind of mirror the first line of mm. uh, next. Uh, there's that scene where uh, Ming and Sierra first go to the film studio. And when, before they kind of run off together, they say, you know, we can't keep waiting here forever. And then that transitions into, you can't keep me waiting here forever. And there's all these kind of parallels and the gunshots from the shooting at the trees, going to the gunshots at the end of Rio Bravo, mm. uh, rainstorm, rainstorm, uh, from the big kind of gang confrontation, we kind of see that trickling off the next morning, and yeah, I was really even the first time I saw this, I could tell that Yang was uh, cognizant of the fact that he needed to keep audiences engaged from scene to scene with mm-hmm. such a long film. Right.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of levity. I, I think it's so. For such a, a tense film, it is at times very enjoyable. So I, I think that's kudos to Yang for for accomplishing that.
2: Yeah, and all three times I saw this, including the time with the commentary, uh, I love that part where um, Sir and Ming are walking through that kind of shopping area, and the little kid just passes by and goes, "Whoa, out on a date, huh?" <laughs> yeah, and something about that scene just got me every time.
1: Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and even Cat, uh, Cat is almost comic relief. Uh, yeah. Oh, oh yeah, right. big time.
0: So,
2: oh, getting out of the shower in the morning, American style. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I'd forgotten about that. That's yeah. It seems like a, a Ozu comedy almost there. It's funny. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, any anything else kind of on the the structure of the film and it's uh it's a pretty you know four hours anything else that uh, kept you going scott
2: uh not that i i don't think anything that i haven't mentioned uh, i do mm-hmm. think that he yang uh said that this film is best viewed kind of in one sitting and i would agree with him mm-hmm. but there is like an almost perfectly classical kind of second act break mm-hmm. Uh, or first act, depending on how you want to look at it. Right when Honey gets pushed in front of that truck, and then kind of there's a slight fall out there, and then it goes to Ming in the uh, kind of sanatorium, the doctor's kind of hospital area. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think right at that moment is kind of a second act beginning uh, that with Honey's death. It's almost like a Shakespearean kind of play at like the height of tension. That concert acts kind of beautifully as kind of bringing all these characters together. Um, And then there's kind of a cool down period before it starts to ramp up again. So I think he's employing a very familiar structure to keep this thing moving. Uh, Even if at first, I I know, at least for me, it was hard to keep track of who exactly everybody was and what their relationships were to everybody. You know, Yang talked about how he could have made a 300 episode TV series out of the amount of detail (laughs) he wrote for each character. And you can definitely feel that watching it. uh, And it can be kind of intimidating, I think, for that first hour or so but then watching it the second time when i knew who everybody was i could see the seeds being planted a little bit better
0: and see kind of how he was telling his story yeah this probably this probably would have been a, a tv series now i mean i just don't i, I oh, don't yeah. see That's a, good a four point. hour yeah. film you know being being made i mean today you it'd be it would be broken up and I, i'm sure you know some audience will have difficulty with the uh, the length but hey you know it's home media you can pause it and <laughs> go go get a drink
1: yeah. And, and actually, I, I did watch it in two sittings. So and I think I did stop it right around that area, um, r- right after the honey. So I, I think it is a logical break. And uh, although I don't I don't know if I'd say two acts, I think it's more like 10 acts. Hmm.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, that might be I guess I might just was thinking in terms of like classical plays. And yeah, uh, right. there's definitely more than one kind of no going back from point, which is one way of defining an act break. But I think that. Especially coming in like almost exactly in the middle of the film, it's mm-hmm. hard to imagine that Yang wasn't aware of kind of how he was breaking it up.
1: And and I've already referred to it as first half and second half, and really the fir- yeah, first totally. half is the innocence, and uh, and then the second half, and also with the father and the prison too. Uh, you know, it, everything changes, mm-hmm. and and of course the violence. So yeah, it's very much uh, two movies in one.
2: And it's pretty remarkable how much of an impact a lot of these characters make i mean honey especially is he's only in the film for like 23 minutes mm-hmm. or so you know not mm-hmm. very long but such because he's talked about yeah all the time for the first 90 minutes uh and he's, he's given like, such a great entrance you know he has this navy uniform yeah. on he's completely distinct from the rest of the cast he's like Harry uh, he has this kind of yeah, <laughs> yeah. Big time. Yep. and but he's also undercut kind of well you know he has this kind of Everyone talks about him as a kind of mythic figure, but he has such a narrow vision. You know, War and mm-hmm. Peace is just a martial arts novel to him, and everything comes back <laughs> to this kind of limited ambition of gangs and turf, and he can only see the ways in which he's been slighted, and he can't kind of, you know... He doesn't have this kind of grand vision that everyone ascribes to him.
1: Well, he's a kid, and they're all kids. Yeah, and exactly. they're all naive and, and have no idea what, what where they're going or where they are, really. So, yeah, Honey especially. He's he's immature, and, and I think going to the... Uh, to the concert that should have been a unifying and positive experience because uh, the gangs kind of came together uh really against him but he had to start stuff and uh, and even that was a, a great scene too uh, the
0: little confrontation there but uh yeah i just love this movie <laughs> yeah there's yeah. so much to to enjoy i mean another another parallel i was thinking of the uh you've got harry lime entrance or uh, uh how about the motorcycle boy in uh, rumble fish you know the just again the the unseen character the the oh, totally. character who's not there and then shows up and of course you know the you know how um, much gravitas and uh, weight or you know that the Mickey Rourke character has it's uh, yeah that I, I found that really kind of stabilizing the film a little bit for me when uh, Honey showed up because they kept referencing Honey and wondering you know Ming and there's obviously this this burgeoning uh, it, it seems like. Romance between Sir and Ming, and what's going to happen when uh, when Honey shows up, and really kind mm-hmm. of you know stabilizes the film, but also seems to be where we start to um, you know degrade into violence. You know when uh, when um, you know Honey is uh, pushed into the. Uh, Know the the street there, but yeah, and he still cuts away from the violence too. You know, you you, yeah, you know, you still the um, one thing that I I think is you know, as far as the characters go, that was confusing to me, and I didn't understand it until later. Was who the uh, really the third um, gang is there? Uh, The the ones that are kind of you know that have the hats, they've got the uh, the, you know the samurai swords, Um, yeah. Who who I think are are friends of and are the ones that are actually avenging Honey. I understand. So that that was a bit um, confusing for me on first watch.
1: I think Tony yeah, Raines mentioned sure. that they were just uh, a peripheral gang from another part of town, but really weren't centrally involved between these two. Um, uh, of mm-hmm. course, at the time, there probably were lots of gangs uh, all over the place. So
0: yeah, it kind of made sense that they were, you know that they would show up. I mean, where else would the the muscle? I guess kind of. I mean, they, yeah, they show up as the muscle.
1: And that character of Threads, I think, was from that third gang. And even though he mm. hangs out with the others, he's not part of either. Uh, he's, But they all know him. And I'm sure they all... I mean, there's so many characters in this film, but I'm, I'm sure there are even more that we don't see.
2: Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> Yeah. I almost expect more kind of off-screen characters, like in out one, where there'd be right. some character that they keep talking right. about who never shows up. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the acting's all, I think I thought, really outstanding. And mm. I didn't even think about... Uh, The thing that uh, Cheng Chen mentioned in the interview on the supplements where Yang had to meld these performers, many of whom were Mm. completely inexperienced with uh, some adult actors who had had quite a bit of experience. But they all seem to kind of take place in the same register. There's no one who kind of rings a false note, I thought. Yeah, surprising
0: with how many characters there are and so many. I mean, most of them uh, unprofessional, uh, many, that you know, their first uh, time. Yeah, that's a it's a great point. It's no one sticks out uh, to me.
1: Well, I think Chang Shen uh, sticks out some, and and not just because he became famous, but uh, and you know he's who played Sir, and he's been in a lot of things, uh, Crouching Tiger, and uh, he was in the Grandmaster recently, uh, mm-hmm. worked worked with Wang Kar Wai a lot, and uh, I think Zhang A yeah. uh, tremendous actor, but I, and and actually his interview was interesting too, where he talked about how this movie changed him, and and just going into the this character, and really Yang led him in, into this character. And him coming out and being feeling very detached, like Sir, and uh, and really isolated from his classmates, and uh, and yeah, and and I think you have to have that sort of that sort of isolation to become a, a good actor. You have to be able to reach into those dark d- depths. Um, so that probably yeah. made his his career in a way. Uh, he's probably not complaining. <laughs> no, I, I can <laughs> well, imagine. <now. laughs> you know,
0: he's coming of age himself and having to play. You know, for this long, long film that took. You know, I think it was six months to film. I can imagine him becoming that character. And you know, if you're you're trying to find your place as a as an actor, anyway, uh, it's the first time coming to it, and you know, uh, trying to find your way as an adolescent, I can, I can see that happening. It's a pretty amazing story.
1: And the father, well, so inter- ra- I'm sorry. the father is his real father, too. And I, mm-hmm. I think that yeah. played a part.
2: Um, but he's... Uh, Cheng Chen is so interesting to watch on screen. He has yeah. this kind of uneasy physicality to him where he's constantly making these tiny adjustments of glance or posture or mm-hmm. expression. And, and I don't know that that was like an actorial choice. It might just have been his own unease with being on screen for the first time and holding a film. But it registers so well for that character who's not kind of anchored at all but in family or in gangs or at school and he's constantly trying to assess who he is in each mm-hmm. environment and who he should uh present himself to be
1: it makes me think of like uh brisson or uh antonioni or maybe not, not antonioni uh de Saica, where they use amateur actors and actually brisson he called what does he call them uh, uh he, he uses a name uh they're uh, like uh, puppets or something like that it's yeah it's i, know what you mean. I right. can't remember either i, I can't yeah. either but uh but what he does he does so many takes to where the, it's unconscious and so it's really not a performance it's what he's led them into and, and i'm not i don't know if if yang adopted that or, or what he did but whatever he did it did work uh, he did command tremendous performances really from everybody yeah. uh, I, i'd say no weak n- no weak links
2: yeah, and I love Lise Yang's performance as Ming. I was so surprised mm. to learn that she was v- dubbed in her voice. Um, yeah. yeah. It such, I wish they had credited it. I don't know who does that voice, but it's such an interesting register that she has kind of vocally and kind of sets her apart from the other girls and kind of, kind of heightens that unknowability. There's a bit of an ethereal nature to her, and Yang's expression, too, is kind of... Uh, she's not as open as the other characters. You sense that she's maybe been a little bit more wounded. Her family situation seems... Uh, very uncertain and tenuous and mm-hmm. she has this history with men that doesn't seem to have le- left her with a great deal of self-confidence or uh, certainty of herself but has also at the same time opened her up to all these guys making advances at her right. constantly and so she has to constantly be her guard against that mm-hmm. as well and so uh, whereas at first she comes across as such a calm figure you can see that that calmness is really born out of uh, some, a sort of defensiveness mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, she she has um, you know, she gets, she has those advances uh, really from a um, you know male female perspective and also from a parental standpoint because she yeah. know, she doesn't have her father and so there's the doctor that you know wants to become a father figure of sorts and sir maybe both um you know maybe father and um, you know as a Uh, as a relationship. So it's, and there's the one scene where she's looking at the camera. I I can't remember another scene in the film uh, where that happens, where she has her um, tryout for the, uh, the film and uh, and she's kind of looking at the camera, kind of looking down, maybe a a touch, but it's a a nice, uh, really nice emotional moment. It's very striking.
2: Yeah. And there's always these illusions that she's this more emotional person outside. She Mm. talks about how she cries and cries when honey's gone. And, I can't remember there's some other moment where she mentioned that, but I I can't figure out if she's exaggerating her emotional side or if she's just not letting that side be shown in public. And it kind of adds, like I said, to the unknowability of that character. And one thing I found interesting is we never actually see a shot of her and honey together. The one scene they're in together is in that ice cream parlor, but she rushes off screen to see him and then rushes back on screen away from him. And we never see them together, but they have, Clearly, the connection that they forge is so powerful to her because mm-hmm. it's every time he's gone, and certainly by the time he dies, she's nearly catatonic.
1: And, and uh, one going back to that performance, uh, one thing I think, uh, whether she's acting or not acting, I, um, later, Sir, when he revisits the studio and they ask about her, he makes a comment that um, uh, that they couldn't tell what was real and what was fake. Uh, and really, pretty much just uh, debasing the filmmakers, which Yang probably uh, apparently those films made in the '50s and '60s were pretty terrible. So mm. <laughs> he's he's probably speaking uh, for himself there. But but again, I, I think that she she was just an emotional person, and so that performance she was even though that was a performance within a performance, probably drawing from her own heartbreak. Uh, um, and yeah, and and I think both characters whether she was dubbed or not they do so much more with their faces and their looks and their expressions like i said so uh so you almost don't need the dialogue Uh, i mean you do of course but (laughs) (laughs) yeah they have to say things but (laughs) yeah i think yeah and
2: even just the way they're posed together uh Hmm. sir and ming's kind of physical relationship even though they don't you know become physically involved uh the way they're uh, posed on screen and the way they relax together or yeah the body language later in the film yeah and then later in the film there's that very strange shot which is the only shot that is like as far as i can remember purely expressionistic where we see their reflections kind of in like the wall the, door and kind there, of the plaster, yeah, yeah the and they're almost kind of like ghosts yeah it's very it's a really strange sh- shot choice at that point in the film to introduce um but it has this kind of weird psychological effect.
0: Yeah, yeah. I was thinking, I'd I noted that one too, where it's like they're, they're speaking about the, the difficult situation that's going on with them and you, you don't see their, their faces. You just hear them and just that, you know, the very odd little shadow on the door. But then when they kind of come together, uh, maybe as a couple again, walking down the stairs, that's when you, you see their faces and everything looks uh, a bit brighter at that point. So, yeah, it's, I, I certainly, I mean, it's certainly in the performances, but uh, also how Yang, composes everything he was very um, very specific uh, there w- weren't changes to you no know, no real uh, opportunity for improvisation or you know I think they stuck to the script pretty right. much and you know there were um, some cases with uh with multiple takes but he he definitely ran a, a tight ship uh, i would I would say
1: yeah we just talked about Altman uh, <laughs> and planned improvisation I think yang is the complete opposite he's very exacting and, mm. and perfectionist uh, at least that's what I gather from uh, well I've only others only seen Yee Yee uh, unfortunately I'd love to see a lot more uh, Criterion Listen yeah we need that box <laughs> set uh, for I, sure yeah I don't know about the transfers though I think that's the, uh, I know it, it took a. that's
2: the yeah, sticking point yeah. it
1: took a lot of work I think for them to get this transfer and, and this is seen as a uh, you know a cinematic masterpiece so uh, yeah hopefully some others well will, uh, so, so anyway uh, I, you guys both watched Yee Yee recently right
2: Yeah, I do want to touch, Mm -hmm. sorry, real quick. You mentioned Altman, uh, and it got me to thinking about how this is an ensemble cast, too. And like I said, all the characters are so well defined. And the moment that really stood out to me that really made me realize how well that Yang was thinking through this world is the murder scene, you know, kind of pointedly, there's all these people kind of walking by, not realizing what happened. But as soon as he cuts that wide shot, if you look in kind of the upper right of the screen, Mm -hmm. there's a teenage girl looking right at what happened and she realizes instantly yep. what's going on it's great and it kind of s- subtly cues you into the sense that the girls all know at least what's going on in each other's lives and are very attuned to the male aggression and male violence um and they and you sense that maybe that character was kind of looking at them having this kind of heated argument even before anything violent happened and they're the women kind of have this glance at all times to watch out for one another mm.
1: Yeah I had I rewatched that scene a couple times just because the way everybody reacts is is really uh, just fantastic and apparently that they had to get that shot pretty quick because they had to build that little Yeah that's crazy. Bizarre. Uh, they they knocked it out of the park.
0: Uh, hmm. so. Yeah, I i found uh, one thing I thought was really interesting uh the the timing in kind of watching this film thinking about it and I read a review on Slant Slant Magazine uh that actually mentions uh, Altman, and it says his you know, his generous use of, um, or Yang's use of long shots and spare but startling close-ups, we recognize the influence of Altman, and I'm like, that surprised nice. me. I, I guess I could see that, but I'm like, otherwise, they're they're like polar opposites. Not <laughs> yeah, a lot of overlapping dialogue. In fact, no. not a lot of dialogue, <laughs> not period. <so> much. <laughs> no.
2: Though there is that uh, scene at the clinic where we first see uh, Ming talking to the doctor, and we hear this dialogue having to do with somebody boasting about his Uh, time in some small town that has excellent drainage systems and it turns out to be this off-screen conversation that's not at first I thought it was the doctor kind of you know talking down and condescending and trying to seem impressive to Ming Uh, but it turns out to just be this military figure talking to a secretary
0: right
1: (laughs) yeah I think there might be some some uh, dialogue with the pool hall scene uh, if I recall correctly and of course the concert there's a lot of chatter at the concert so Mm. uh, which are two pivotal scenes
0: yeah well, you'd mentioned it, Aaron, You know, talking about uh, Yi Yi. Of course, it's the other film in the collection uh, from Criterion uh, and from uh, Edward Yang. Curious what you guys uh, think about Yi Yi. I guess uh, maybe I'll just lead it in and just mention something that you'd alluded to with uh, the filmmaking style with Yi Yi. And I, I noticed with this film, too, where um, there's, there's a number of shots, especially in a brighter summer day, I guess, where you have... The actor—you only see one actor, or you only see one actor's um, head, and you see the back of the other actor's head. And I notice this in a brighter summer day. I mean, it's a big uh, plot point and thematic point in Yi, Yi of you know the fact that you can only see a half truth at any given time because you can't see—you don't know, have eyes in, in the back of your head. And I notice that in a brighter summer day, kind of a bringing that together where, you know, there's a scene where Ma and Sir are talking and you only see Ma, or there's a scene where I think it's Ming and Sir are speaking and you don't get the, the shot reverse shot. You just see Ming's face and you see the back of uh, Sir's head. So I thought that was, you know, really interesting. We, we see, you know, Yang's uh, style there, but curious what you guys think, you know, overall with uh, Yang and what you thought of how this you know, compares to uh, Yi Yi.
2: Yeah, I mean, both films are very attuned to kind of the, the limitness of anyone's perception mm. to see into anyone else's lives or to see into the world around them. Uh, and in this film, in Brighter Summer Day, it's kind of like the everyone's downfall. You know, the father can't see, you know, what uh, the trouble that Wang brings into his life or the trouble that his aso- past associations could bring or how to navigate the uh, bureaucracy of the system that's trying to bring him down and sir can't see into Ming or has any curiosity about who she truly is and that proves his downfall because he just can't accept it but in Yi Yi the kind of breakthrough comes with everybody accepting that they can't know everything about each other or be everything to each other you know the wife in that film has to go off in this kind of retreat where we don't really you know she speaks about a little bit but ultimately the husband has to accept that you know whatever she's gone through she's gone through and he can't be the one who's you know provided all the answers in her life and and she too you know she's not all the answers in Hitler's life he has to have this kind of quasi affair in order to find mm-hmm. some semblance of peace with himself and with his past and I think I mean Yi Yi impressed me much more right off the bat uh, than Brighter Summer Day did I think because it Kind of comes back to this idea of peace. That's kind of reassuring in a mm-hmm. lot of ways that Brighter Summer Day is not. Mm. Um, but I, I think you're totally right on in that both films are keyed into that same theme, just from different kind of to different ends. Mm.
1: Yeah, I think Ye Yee is more accessible and uh, and an easier watch, and, and it's more family drama. It's there's there are a lot of characters, but they're not quite as dense as or as heavy as you put it, Mark. Uh, Brighter Summer, and of course, Brighter Summer Day is a period piece, whereas. Mm-hmm. Yee is a uh, modern for you know, 2000 when it came out. Um, I actually wrote about Yee Ye, I think last year and I, I, I've seen it twice and I, I don't remember it as specifically as I, as I wish, but my memory is that it, well, as far as parallels with brighter summer day, I'd say it's very deliberate and I'd say that uh, mm. you know a lot of the, the parallels with the uh, you know matching shots are, uh, are very much, very similar in both films uh, Yang definitely knows what he's doing and he's he crafted this very carefully. Um, one thing I, I remember is that, uh, the, the family dynamic, you know, they there I think there were three generations in, in, uh, Yi and really the two I think are almost reflected in the, in the, uh, the father's son, you know, the, the the son is learning about life and actually really the father is learning about life. And, and so there's sort of a circular, uh, narrative mm-hmm. there. Uh kind of coming of age to become the father, if I remember. So I, anyway, I'll post my review in the show notes cause, uh, and I'll read it later because I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: it's one. Well, the teenage
2: daughter in that film too has her own kind of limited perceptions and mm. the, her coming of age story there, kind of in the relationship dynamics, there's a similar kind of love triangle going on.
1: Right, yeah. And she's kind of like Ming in a way, that character, I think.
2: Yeah, mm. you can kind of see maybe this is him trying to see... Yang trying to see under Ming's perspective in some ways.
1: And the kid is kind of like Cat.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, the kids are always yeah. delightful in these movies. <laughs> yeah, they are.
0: Is it Yang Yang, I think is the the, yeah. the, the son there? Yeah. he's He's yeah. great. Yeah. He was... You know my entry point into this film uh, so much and I just love the again coming of age for a number of characters especially for him I think my favorite character of course it's a bit meta again is in the movie room with the, the thunder lightning and how he you know kind of learns about girls and attraction in, in one shot uh, you know where the he sees the girl's underwear and she comes in and she's kind of standing in front of the lightning and you know she she doesn't know what's going on but he's really perceiving her for the first time. And I, I just, uh, I, I'd, I'd, I'd seen this before. I've seen half of it. I'm finishing the other half tonight, uh, because it's, uh, I just need to do that. And, uh, I think, um, he's, he was my, uh, my favorite character, uh, in this film, kind of our, our through line to it. Um, really a, a good film and long too three hours. I mean, it's not four hours, but it's still, right. yeah. <laughs> still daunting.
1: But it, 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 flows fast if I remember mm-hmm. right. I, and, and I, I love love yeah ye-, ye is uh, another masterpiece, so um, but no it, it's not as deep, but uh well it is
0: pretty deep too <laughs>
2: yeah, I think it's mm-hmm. got its share yeah it's, I, it's I think no uh,
0: uh, the, it's not the player <laughs> a, a number of folks of course people still need to see a brighter summer day, but I've seen Yi ye- Yi on many people's um, top films of the the decade um mm-hmm. you know contemporary films, but you know from the two thousands even uh you know that decade even in, into today uh, many. Very high regard for for that film,
1: yeah, of the two, I think I would recommend if people haven't seen a yang film I, I'd say start with he Yi mm. and then go to bright brighter summer day but uh but they're both tremendous,
0: yeah, probably agree, <laughs> so uh, brighter summer day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, it is. <laughs> we, we we do need to uh, rate this thing. So uh, Scott, I'm going to turn it to you. What rating would you? And we do a you know a, a one to ten rating on a film. What would you give a Brighter Summer Day? You know, I'm so bad
2: with film ratings. I don't even do ratings on Letterboxed. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, my impulse is to go full full nine or ten. I can't really see any. I noted like one flaw in this film, maybe one flaw mm. where the, uh, Ma, when he's kind of in, under police interrogation, he's you know, kind of posing as too cool for school. And then it cuts away from him for a few seconds. And then when it cuts back to him, he's, he's kind of in tears and weeping. And that transition didn't quite work for me. But that's mm. the one like tiny flaw I can see in this movie, which I think is just marvelous. And it, like I said, it took me a couple of viewings, but I think like a lot of films in the Criterion Collection, I liked that I had bought it before I knew what I was getting into. And mm, so I... Sure kind of had that room to go back to it and I hope people take the same chance on it because now that I have, like I just think it's such a wonderfully insightful and fully felt film. And I I can't, I I just want to rewatch it again after talking about it because it's so, uh, effective. So sure. 10. Why not? There you
1: go. Very (laughs) rewarding. Yeah. (laughs)
2: Uh,
1: I I just pulled up my review and I gave Yee a 10. Um, Mm. and, uh, as far as flaws, you know, like you said earlier, Scott, maybe there's 10, 15, 20 minutes that could be pulled out of it. That's maybe a little extraneous. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think this is near a perfect film. Uh, I think in fact, I'd say I like this more than, uh, Yi Yi. I, I, I'd say, and, and, and there's a lot of hype, you know, this is on the Sight and sound mm-hmm. list. It's, you know, held up to be one of the masterpieces of, you know, definitely Taiwan cinema, maybe Chinese or even world cinema. So, yeah, I, I, I hate, well, I don't give many tens, but I, I'll i give this one a 10. Uh, and like you, Scott, I, I think I'll, I want to watch it again right now. And I, I think I'll probably watch it
0: many, many times uh, going forward. Uh, it's mm. one I think I'll come back to a lot. Uh, daunting film uh, based on the reputation of it and, you know, does it really deliver? You go into a four-hour film like this and you just wonder, you know, can it can it go there? And I, it, it's a bit bewildering on first watch and mm-hmm. I, um, you know, people talk about thinking about it and pondering and reviewing and thinking. I, th- this film has been in my consciousness ever since I, I saw it and I did just finish it a couple days ago and uh, I, I fully expect it to continue to do that. It's absolutely, I mean, we spent... How much time talking about it? It's it's absolutely that rich of a film. Um, there's so much to think about and dig into and uh, just consider and for what it says about this time frame and you know Taiwan in general. And I, I know you can relate it to uh, your your personal life. So I, I could give it a nine and a half just based on minor flaws like just continuity things. Um, you know, there's a oh not the like Elvis a, thing. <laughs> no, no, I was thinking of like the like the shotgun with no recoil. And I I think oh, yeah. some of it. Some of it comes back down to you know budget. Like I, I think like mm-hmm. some of the liquor bottles in the cabinet were, were a little too new. You know I was thinking of the letters of Iwo Jima. I think it was very accurate there, and I, I think maybe it was you know he could have um, you know he, he used more more modern bottles. So there's just these these minor things, but I'm going to chalk it up to budget and, and go with a ten. It's a ten film. Um, those those are really such minor quibbles that I you know you got to throw them out the window. So it's it's a ten film or tens across the board.
1: Yeah, I think every film has some continuity problems. That's just the nature of film. I don't care mm-hmm. how good the continuity person is, uh, but yeah, you have to. It's not like a report card or like a, a judging card at the Olympics where you deduct for this or that. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the magnitude of the the experience and and, right. and you know the fact that we're going to go back to it
0: time and time again. I think speaks volumes. Uh, yeah. I, and I, I thought it was a little, I was going to, you know, quote unquote, deduct points. I thought it was a little odd at the end where, uh, you know, the mother pulls the, the uniform out of the laundry after it's been like two months um, when he's been in jail. I thought that was a little bit odd. But, um, you know, it, it did, I, I think it makes sense looking back on it again. So there, there's a number of moments like that that, you know, I, I may have questioned, but, you know, considering it I, again, it wasn't a, a problem for me.
1: And they also play with time a lot too, so mm-hmm. a lot of those goofs might not be goofs. Uh, you know, maybe, yeah. Maybe uh, even the Elvis thing, it that might have actually been in nineteen sixty 1960 or nineteen sixty one when that happened. We we really don't know. Or actually no, we do totally we, we don't know that when the murder takes place, right? So
2: Yeah. But that's about all we get. We get the beginning, <laughs> you know, time card and the end and right. that's all. <laughs>
0: So uh, how about the supplements? It, it is a, it's a double disc. It's a long film. So luckily, we've got uh, the film, four hours, and a, a commentary as, the, as a supplement on one disc and the other supplements uh, on the other. We wanted to kind of focus on each one of them our, ourselves a little bit. Scott, uh, what did you think about the, the commentary with uh, Tony Rains? all four hours uh, I
2: was I was really <laughs> glad to see that it was a supplement in the first place because I'm such a commentary track nerd mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. these are the easiest supplements to kind of put on while I'm doing other things which is my oh, yeah. primary uh, employment of supplements <laughs> the idea of sitting down to watch them with the the time I have available to watch anything is always daunting and so I got through most of the documentary even though it was subtitled and I had to release it from the tv but uh the commentary was so helpful I think and Tony Raines kind of apologizes up front mm-hmm. for talking so much about plot but i think it's for a film like this it's helpful and necessary and it's also four hours long so if he wants to spend you know half of a four hour long commentary track talking about plot you still get two hours of insight into Mm -hmm. the the production which i was surprised and uh, glad to learn that he actually visited the filming of this film and had Mm -hmm. some on the ground insights into that not just kind of speculating about what yang is maybe thinking or maybe doing or how he's maybe approaching a scene he actually knew what was going on and was actually friends with edward yang and uh had a good sense of you know how he would approach these things and yeah i just thought all his insights you know i, I disagree with him a bit about ming and uh but the insights come from spending literally at this point decades with the film and they're mm-hmm. so valuable and he's, he's such a smart guy already and i like the way he approaches a lot of his commentary tracks and was certainly not disappointed with his work here. I, I do also want to say that the transfer on this film is quite remarkable.
1: That's great. For the,
2: yeah, I mean, I like the supplements they put together for this, but I wish they'd gotten a little bit more into the difficulties in bringing this uh, package together, oh, which yeah. had been in the works for, you know, at least what, six, seven years mm-hmm. based on the Criterion Forum posts and probably longer even than that. Uh, mm-hmm. But I wish they'd talked a bit about the process of restoring this and finding the elements for it mm-hmm. because it's such a. a period in cinema and a place in cinema that is so kind of underexplored in the Western world. And so bringing this package together couldn't have been easy, but I'm really happy with the presentational results of it.
1: Yeah. I've seen some before pictures of it and, uh, and yeah, it's night and day. So it looks tremendous.
2: Uh,
1: yeah, I, I, I'm with you. I, I love any t- Tony Raines commentary and uh, the fact that he sat in there for four hours and, yeah. and I, I forgive plot. He's got to talk about something. Uh, but yeah, he, yeah. he provided... And he takes
2: like one break in that entire time. He's I like, know. He's like, I'm just going to take a break for a couple of minutes, and then <laughs> yeah. that's it.
1: Yeah, and he was right back. Uh, no, he he, yeah. he gave so much and uh, to the, to this commentary and fleshed it out so much. So I almost consider it essential to really understand this movie. I think, mm. uh, yeah, I mean, you could you could spend 10, 15 years studying it like he did and, and probably come up with... Similar insights, but uh, yeah, he, he's such a great scholar, and he has such a, a great familiarity with uh, Asian history and cinema that he's really the the the, the best choice for a commentary. and the, And the fact that he has a personal connection um, just makes it even more uh, uh, in, impactful. So yeah, I, I was actually riveted by every word, and 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 I'm like you, Scott. I, I often will do other things while listening to the commentary, but this time I I barely moved. I was just mm. in it.
0: So. Yeah, I I started uh, with a commentary trying to do something, and I just found myself so drawn (laughs) in, and I I felt like I was missing things. I'm like, nope, (laughs) I got to stop what I'm doing. Yeah,
2: in this event, I was actually taking notes, so I was sitting down for it, but I was (laughs) speaking more generally to my approach. And yeah, this is a film that, because it's been so hard to see, uh, there's not a lot written on it out there. You know, it's not one of these typical criterion releases where there's a wealth of material Mm -hmm. already. So this commentary is a really key component of its uh, scholarly and critical understanding. Yeah, it's gold, for sure. Yeah.
1: Thank you, Tony.
0: Yes. <laughs> so how about the, you know, this is from a 2002 documentary, uh, Our Time, Our Story. Uh, what do you think about this one, Aaron?
1: Well, what's interesting is uh, there's another supplement on the, the YI disc about uh, Taiwanese cinema, and it's a shorter history. But this is, uh, and I, I think that might, I could be wrong, but I believe that one was uh, produced by Criterion. But this is one that, as you mentioned, uh, came out uh, uh, probably around the time of Yi-Yi actually, and it's it's made by the people in Taiwan about the CMPC, which is the Central Motion Picture Company, and it pretty much goes uh, it goes beyond the two filmmakers, uh, uh, the two key Yang and Hu uh, Hu I'm
2: always Hu Xiaoshen. Hu
1: Yes, thank you. <laughs> um, It it goes beyond. Of course, those two are integral, but uh, but there's so many uh, great films, and and it starts you know within our time, which uh, has connections with all of them, and then goes through uh, Eleven Women, Growing Up, uh, The Sandwich Man, uh, a whole bunch of movies uh, that I'd never heard of before, and Mm -hmm. uh, that I I really want to see now, but I, I don't know that I ever will. Uh, and and it talks about how uh, really the, the rise and fall and, and and this is really like a new wave movement the, the, with these uh, the new taiwan taiwan cinema you know, they had been making pretty much uh, populist films mainstream films if you will uh but these little these young artists started making art films and uh and serious dramas that you know of course we've seen two of them here and uh and they they were uh, being um celebrated on an international scale as well and still are but the what's actually tragic and what's uh, amazing is that it the the movement petered out in uh, the, in the 80s and a lot of that has to do with the, the politics of the um, of Taiwan and the martial law and and also just uh, you know uh, also economics too uh, they had had to make money um, but really because of that uh, Taiwanese cinema has really uh, aside from Cien. Uh, it's it's really not around anymore, um, which is unfortunate. But but you know it was an hour and a half, a little long. But I I yeah. thought it was riveting and uh, and very very educational because I, I knew nothing about Taiwanese cinema, and there are a lot of uh, peripheral filmmakers that probably don't get the, uh, the the coverage of the 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 main two that uh, you learn about and actually hear from in a lot of respects. So um so yeah, I recommend. Yeah checking that out uh, one, and
2: their films look so good all, all those movies I they do to see,
1: so, they do
0: yeah, yeah. That, that was and the really, frustrating part about watching this is, is you know knowing these films just aren't available
1: and, and I, th- I think this is a vhs transfer too so uh, mm. we're, yeah. we're not seeing any restorations and they still look good
2: yeah some of those films are starting to trickle out there's some company in taiwan that's putting out blu-ray editions if you have a region free blu-ray player and don't mind the hefty import fees Uh, they have uh, a couple Shao shen films uh growing up is in a box set of the kind of early new taiwan cinema uh in our time is in that same box set uh that i really want to get and they all have english subtitles so Mm. if you want to hit up yes asia at some point or to kind of get a taste it's a hefty fee to be trying movies out but i hope it'll be worth it
1: i think you just sold me thanks scott (laughs) (laughs) well hopefully criterion will uh and who knows about the transfers but if they're and i know they're they're pretty um particular about what kind of transfers they'll put out but hopefully they'll they'll come out here
2: Uh, yeah i have the hoxiao shen set and the transfers look great so now that they're mastered i do hope that they'll start to trickle out to the west
1: yeah. And, and nice. one, thing, one thing I wrote down is in, in the 1990s, there were 36 films per year in Taiwan. And in the 70s, there were 200 films per, per year. And of course, wow. a wow. small fraction of those were, were uh, new, new Taiwan cinema. So the, just the industry in itself imploded. And a lot of it was piracy, too. It's a really interesting story.
0: Yeah, it's one that I, I think you could watch that that documentary more than once and get a lot out of it because you know with all the names like you mentioned and um, you know just get, getting that view into the the movement of how you know it's not it's it's the the new Taiwan cinema movement but it's more of a, a movement towards you know social reality and politics and not mm-hmm. like a, you know the the free form of a French New Wave or something you know it's more like a maybe Italian neo realism movement or something like that so it's interesting to get. Their their insight,
1: and again, it, it's intertwined with the history. So, having mm-hmm. watched a brighter summer day and the rains commentary, uh, you actually contextualizes it even better. So, yeah. yeah, good stuff. Great package.
0: Yeah, well, and there is uh, we did allude to the interview, which is called at actor's Des- destiny, uh, Chang Chen, and it, it is we mentioned it a, a bit earlier, but uh, you know he did star in a number of films that folks know, Happy Together. That's um, Wang Kar Wai, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, The Grandmaster. Uh, he was also in 2046 from uh, Kar Wai, Red Cliff, a kind of an epic film that came out a few years ago. And he was in The Assassin from last year from Ho Shen So a very recognizable face. And, uh, you know, he really nice interview with him. I, I'd taken a lot of notes about how he had um, the really had an epiphany with this film Uh, his father was an actor and uh, he wondered why you know his dad was gone all the time and his friends you know his father was uh, not their fathers were not absent and, uh, you know, within this, he became the character, and uh, he learned that he, he loved acting based on that. You see it in a different way than you normally do becoming that character. And, of course, you know, as I believe you had alluded to, Aaron, he became um, a different person, more uh, introspective and um, mm-hmm. quieter uh, there. But um, And then there's also, you know, some other notes, too. And I, I think this is in line with... Um, well, and he talks about the, the six months to, to film this, and he does talk about Yang quite a bit, how the very serious atmosphere on, on screen and kind of a sense of dread. So if you want a, a insight into working with Yang, I mean, this, that's kind of the—I I think with these actor interviews, you get that uh, insight that you may not get otherwise into uh, an actor uh, director's working but also you know the acting uh, process and it was but it was nice to see his influence um you know with how much we love both the films in the collection uh he mentions towards the end and i, I think this is in line with what i thought was a really nice director's note in the uh, the booklet um uh, Chang mentions how he made him feel uh, what was most important to maintain a gr- uh, great enthusiasm for what you love, uh, and just keep heading in that direction and working hard at it, um, saying that's the essence of Yang. And in the booklet, there's that director's note that says, very similar to that, you know, that uh, within— he, he kind of talks about history and how uh, history is can be lost through hundreds of, hundreds of years, but through— art, you know, such as movies, architecture, music, literature, we can kind of piece together uh the truths of humanity. Kind of getting a little bit uh, big here, but but he he does say, you know, how this film may not have been uh made without his kind of personal optimism to to keep it going. So I thought that was kind of a nice uh symmetry between you know the the director's note and uh, chain. So yeah, really nice interview. Uh, is a was a new interview done by Criterion. It's about a little less than uh, twenty minutes long.
2: Yeah, I always underestimate when I see a big slate of interviews. I'm like, oh, they're just interviews. But mm-hmm. Criterion does such good interviews. Oh, they, do. they really they do. Yeah. Get, have a good way of bringing out uh, great actor insights without making it feel like the actors are like strained to come up with these memories. It they create a, so these things that create a good atmosphere in the actual interview room that creates mm. kind of a a willingness for the actors to talk um without kind of uh making them feel like they're just providing a service i guess it feels like they really want to be there yeah sure. it's
0: not like a, a press a junket point. or
2: anything it's uh, you know, yeah true. totally <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah yeah well so I, uh, we, we sorry, do like ahead. to give we do like to give overall criterion ratings i'm I, sorry scott it's another rating uh but 10 10 <laughs> if you're gonna give a rating <laughs> is it any less than a 10
2: uh, yeah, no, I'd have to go to a 10 as well. Okay. I, I think there's a tendency in the home video review market to review uh, what we'd like to be there rather mm. than what is there. And so, like I said, I'd lo- I really wish they would have gotten into kind of the history of the distribution of this film and the efforts made in kind of rescuing it and bringing it back into the spotlight. Mm-hmm. Um, but since they didn't do that, what they did present was uh, very on point and very well thought out and very helpful in understanding the film and the time and place in which it was made. So, yeah, I'd, I'd go 10. Nice.
0: Yeah, Aaron, I guess I, I think you just gave a rating. <laughs> I
1: would have liked to have seen that as well. I I could have watched, you know, endless minutes on this film uh, and and I could have watched five discs about this film, but I'm very very satisfied with the uh the package they released. And I think it's an early candidate for one of my releases of the year and and this has been so far a tremendous year and it promises more to come. So I think uh, I will be talking about this one probably later.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, I'm, I'm with you guys. Lovely. Uh, it's. I guess I would say from an overall Criterion rating, the way I think of this is one of the things that I think uh, of Criterion as a business is bringing films like this into the collection, rescuing films, international, mm-hmm. foreign films, hard to get, uh, and presenting them to the to us films that we may not see otherwise unless, um, you know, ones that may not even be available. I know Yang uh, did not like to distribute his films in Taiwan. So, you know, his films are notoriously hard to find. So yeah, thank you, Criterion. It's a lovely um, package. And, uh, you know, I know we've been waiting a number of years and uh, here it is. So uh, it's certainly a 10. And I, Aaron, I'm I'm assuming are we canonizing this thing? Yes. Okay. <laughs> canon music playing right now. In uh, dark
1: there's dark. there is no canon music, but uh, uh, well, are you lonesome tonight? Can that be the canon music?
2: There we go. There, there you we go. go. Great cover art too. Amazing cover yeah, art. Yeah. Yes,
1: all around. I I just love and and isn't the cover art from Edward Yang's own belongings?
2: Apparently, uh, yeah. He, yeah. Took he took the, the actual photo. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah.
1: So, um, yeah, just. Very. Uh, they they put a lot of TLC in, into this release, and and I, I think it was delayed a while, so I I can tell that uh, they they probably ha- anticipated it coming and uh, wanted it to be special. So yeah, good, yeah. The, the, the Chen
0: interview, and I think the uh, the commentary both from two thousand fourteen. So right you know, recorded yeah. earlier and released later. So yeah, excellent. That is a brighter summer day. <laughs> nice work, guys. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, just to wrap up, we wanted to thank everyone for listening, and uh, certainly we would love some more feedback, um, some more emails. Uh, send us some feedback on Twitter and Facebook. And, uh, you know, we had a couple of nice, really nice iTunes reviews. Wanted to thank folks for that. Um, I, it's interesting kind of where people are coming at listening to podcasts and uh, had a nice, you know, two five-star reviews. One was from uh, Chin Tao Mindy, who said uh, that— um, he or she—I'm guessing she—with Mindy, maybe—is uh, f- new to Criterion releases and found several cr- Criterion-related podcasts and uh, likes the intelligent discussions of the films and uh, and the supplements and that uh, you know the added of the the theme topics and that we don't use the word like seven hundred times per episode. So, like so okay. Well, I, I do like this movie. I think I said that about ten times. Yeah, yeah we, I think we, I think we all did. So, and yeah, a nice uh, review from uh, Jenny Gal too. So, yeah, very nice. Yeah, I, and,
1: I, I, I browse them. I, somebody said the go-to. Po- I, I forget. It was really nice stuff. So, thank you guys. Yeah,
0: yeah, really nice comments there. So, thank you. And, uh, yeah, we have to thank, um, of course, Scott, again, thank you so much for coming on. We've talked so much on other podcasts and <laughs> Chronicles and the newsstand. It's really great to finally have you on uh, Criterion Close-Up, especially, I mean, this just seems like the most appropriate uh, movie to, to have you on. So thank yeah. you. Yeah.
2: Well, I, I'm honored that you thought of me for it, frankly, <laughs> and very happy to finally join you.
1: Yeah, yeah you and, and the, this project were worth the wait. Uh, good pairing good <laughs> there. So yeah, absolutely. thanks for coming on.
0: So, sure thing. and I, you're a busy guy. Uh, just uh, you know, let us know where folks can find you online.
2: Uh, yeah, I'm on Twitter at Rail of Tomorrow. That's R A I L of Tomorrow. I write and do a lot of editing at BattleshipRetention.com, and of course at CriterionCast.com. I, uh, host the mainline episodes uh, where we're doing our Summer with Bergman series. We recently talked about Summer Interlude, and we'll next be talking about Summer with Monica. Mm-hmm. Uh, very cool.
1: And this this one kind of, fit, except for the Berkman part, <laughs> this one <laughs> sort of thematically fits Yeah, a lot out. of summer in my life right now. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> <Well>,
0: me too. <laughs> nice. And we have, uh, I know uh, there's a, a Chronicles episode uh, coming up. We're um, going to be reviewing the June releases. Uh, Aaron, I know you're going to be on that. Scott, I think you are too.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so, I, so we'll have the June releases uh, on Criterion Cast Chronicles coming out soon. I don't want to give a date on that yet but and um, it probably will be out by the time this is out.
2: Okay. <laughs> there you go. There we go. Right.
0: So if if it is the
1: link will be in the show notes or just subscribe to the master feed which I hope you are anyway because there's so many great shows there and uh yeah, such good content. You'll, you'll get that the the main cast, the the summer series, uh, this uh, Keith show, I think is probably going to have a, a show an, uh, his second show around the corner so Yeah. Yeah, we're we're in good Sid company. McGatfly. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah,
0: good, good content. <laughs> So, yeah, <laughs> and uh, folks can find Criterion Close Up, of course, at CriterionCU online at dot and Facebook slash Criterion Close Up. Aaron, where can folks find you? Uh, Twitter, A West 505. Nice. Twitter here uh, at uh, Mark Herney, H U R N E, letterbox two. And um, what just want to let folks know, coming up next, uh, we will be talking about the Humphrey Bogart film in a lonely place and talk discussing uh, some bogey films a little bit so looking forward to that
1: here's looking at you Mark <laughs> <laughs>
0: I looked at you first <laughs> well, video, video's off so prove it <laughs> <laughs> uh, and we're going to let uh, Elvis lead us out tonight so I, I hope you guys aren't lonesome tonight thank you for listening to Criterion Close Up are you lonesome tonight
2: do you miss me are you sorry we drifted apart? Does your
1: memory stray to a
0: bright summer day?